scripture for today, Psalm 127 and 128. Psalm 127 and 128. We're going to look at these two psalms, and you'll notice at the top of Psalm 127, uh, right above the very first verse, the superscription says, A Song of Ascents. Uh, These are psalms that were sung as they approached Jerusalem and the temple to worship. Many of them uh, came from miles away, some even from other countries. And Jerusalem was up on a hill, so you made your way up to Jerusalem and you ascended and so these, they wrote these songs for the pilgrims to be singing to motivate them, clarify what they're doing. And, the, and a song of ascents, or uh, it says of Solomon, some of the versions put uh, for Solomon or to Solomon. So a lot of the commentaries think that David wrote these two psalms for his son Solomon as Solomon grew up so that he would learn to worship the Lord and have the right motivations. And the motivation he gives is the family. Your influence over the family. There are, uh, in these two Psalms, most commentators put them together And there are four stages that are given here. Let's start with stage one, the building of the house, verse one, Psalm 127, verse one. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. If you're going to begin a home, a household, if you're about to get married, Amen. We got some people about to get married. If you're thinking about ending a marriage, this is good good advice. You're going to worship. Here's what you need to know. You need this worship. You need the Lord you're going to worship because without him, you can't build your house. Unless the Lord build a house, they labor in vain to build it. You might get it done, but it won't stand up. Too many trials, too many times you have to forgive. What do you draw on to forgive constantly and deeply? And so what he's saying is that uh, it's not the amount of love you bring to the marriage. It's whether the Lord is helping you build that marriage to his glory and honor. Ecclesiastes 4.12, though a man prevail against one who is alone, two could withstand him, but a threefold cord is not easily broken. We, we, just, we need God. The man and wife and God is a threefold cord. Boy, that's hard to break. So the point is here, uh, we go to worship 
as a declaration of our need for God in our marriage and in our family. And he points out in verse 2, it's in vain you rise up early and go to bed late, eat the bread of anxious toil, for he'll give to you, he'll give to you even while you're sleeping. The anxieties of life, and he's telling them, you go to worship because life will wear you down. It'll wear you out. The anxiety and burdens of it. But you need to realize God will provide for you. You learn that in worship. You're reminded of it. Your faith is renewed. God will even give to you while you're sleeping. He will arrange opportunities. You'll have people talking in your favor and in your promotions. He'll do that even while you're sleeping. God can work on your behalf. So he wants to establish them in the very beginning of the marriage. And then the second stage is when children come. This is in verse Psalm 127, verse 3 to 5. And he says, Behold, as if to say, now look at this. Because remember again what he's doing. He's providing Solomon the meditations and motivations necessary to continue in worship. To go up to the house of God. He says, behold. And he describes children in a threefold manner. One, Children are a heritage or an inheritance from the Lord. They are an inheritance from the Lord. It's like children are given to you. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve them. But you inherited them. I mean, who doesn't like an inheritance? It's like hitting the lottery. Children are like that. See, that's not the way the world looks at children. To them, they're a burden, they're an embarrassment, they're an inconvenience. But here he says, children are inheritance. And look at the next one. Uh, they are not only inheritance, the fruit of the womb is a reward. <laughs> um, because See, he's saying, get a different view of children. The word reward there in Hebrew is, literally means a paycheck. Because here's the thing, here's, here's one of the ways we look at children. Children are an expense. They drain you financially. Amen, they do. <laughs> but you're to view them as a paycheck. That those are your riches, your true riches. And so you need to invest in those. And then he gives a third description of children in verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. They are like arrows... Now, what is an arrow? An arrow is a weapon of war that can take the battle 
beyond where you are. You are limited, but children are like arrows. They can go farther than you can go. They can go into the next generation and influence it. See, he's saying, uh, and we hear it today, why would anyone want to bring children into such a wicked world, an evil world? David is saying, Solomon, you bring children in because it's a wicked world. They are arrows in the hands of a mighty man. They're arrows in your quiver. These are your weapons. You bring them in because it's a bad world and you're out to change the world. If your whole life is just about you, that's one thing. But if your life is about missions and outreach and winning people and building God's kingdom, then children are an asset in that game. Now, I recognize that there are exceptions that Paul calls gifts. Uh, for example, Jesus was never married. But he calls his disciples his children in Hebrews 2. And Paul evidently was not married or had children. But he called Timothy, he calls him his dear son in the faith, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1. So they can have spiritual children. Now those are exceptions. In general, God puts his people in families unless there is an exceptional calling upon a man's life and he'll be gifted for that. So these are thoughts given to a newly married couple, new fathers and mothers, in order to offset the wisdom of this world. Children are your unexpected inheritance from God. They are, a, they are your riches. They make you rich. Not financially, because money doesn't make you rich before God. Children are arrows. They are weapons in your, uh, in your arsenal to use against the enemy. And they are mighty weapons. By the way, have you noticed in the Bible how Satan hates babies? Like with Pharaoh in Exodus 1, killing all the Hebrew baby boys, and Herod in the book of Matthew, killing all the babies in Bethlehem. There is a, there is a satanic death cult behind the murderous rage against the unborn today. And I don't care what kind of logic you use against to, to define it. Uh, the reason Satan hates children is because they have incredible potential to do him damage. They are arrows, and he knows it. And so David says, I want you to know it too. Then there's a third stage. We've seen the beginning of the building of the home in, in verse 1 and 2. Then the arrival of children in verse 3 to 5. By the way, notice verse 5. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. If children are arrows and weapons of our warfare, then brethren, 
Let's have a lot of them. Now, that's what the scripture says. Stage three, the middle years. Psalm 128, verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You'll be blessed and it'll be well with you. Your wife, verse 3, will be like a fruitful vine within your house and your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Now, what is this a picture of? This is the middle years. You're beginning to see the prosperity of hard work. Investments are paying off. You are blessed, verse 2. Your wife is like a fruitful vine. A fruitful vine is a vine that's been there a while. And you know, a vine has uh, stages. It seems to never end. There's the bud and the blossom and then the fruit And for a vine, the cluster, then the wine that comes from the cluster of grapes. And if you wait long enough, you have what? Fine wine. And he's saying, now, son, when you get married, you're going to start, you're going to go into these middle years. And if you will fear the Lord, this is the whole point. Behold, verse 4, shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. If you'll fear the Lord, keep worshiping him, stay faithful in the assembly of worship, your wife will be like a fruitful vine. She will just keep producing and keep um, developing and keep growing. Uh, and there will be no end. Even if you, when you have the best wine, time only makes it better. They had a, a ship go down in 1903. Uh, and it was a ship that carried on it um, some bottles of wine for the Tsar of Russia. And they, they brought up some of the treasury from that ship, a hundred-year-old wine. And they sold it at auction. And they got $275,000 for it. That's fine wine. I have to get my wine on sale. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) But who, I mean, the value of wine in its old age. It gets better and better. I will be married uh, uh, 149 years. (laughs) No, not that long. Uh, Next month, 49 years. And I hugged my wife last night and I said, Honey, you are my hero. And I kissed her. So what do you think of that? Amen. And this is the way that a marriage is supposed to look. Now, I'm going to deal with this in a moment, but 
we're all a mess. None of us, I think, really feels the standard that is given here. But look at the children in verse in the middle years. The children, verse 3, are like olive shoots around your table. Now, what is, what's an olive shoot? Well, <clears throat> the olive tree in Israel is known for its value. It grows in all kinds of soil, bears fruit for literally hundreds of years. It's useful for light, for food, for medicine. That's the olive tree in Israel. It's beautiful. Its leaves turn a silvery color in season. And the, the sun just shine, uh, is it, when it hits it, it's almost dazzling. And it's durable. The olive tree is evidently the only thing that survived the flood of Noah. Genesis 8, 11, it says Noah sent out a, a dove when the water started receding. And the dove came back with a freshly plucked olive leaf. <laughs> they were still alive through the flood. So this is what children are. Notice, your children are like olive shoots, plural. Each one is valuable, but they're individual. You start to see their personalities distinguished, but they're equally valuable. They're all olive shoots. Then there's a fourth stage. We'll call this the final years, the years of the grandparent. Look at verse 5 and 6 of Psalm 128. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. See, that's a grandparent. And that is a wonderful stage of life. That's the final stage that he points to and says, look at this man who, as you go over these Psalms uh, on your way up to the temple, be motivated, be clarified in your thinking. This is what, this is what you're going for. A life of blessing, children, and marriage, and grandparenting. This is what is possible. And it's why we worship and put his kingdom first. But David, who wrote it, he came up short, right? Solomon, to whom he wrote it, he came up short. What if you have failed? And I'll close with this. I just finished reading Genesis. And basically Genesis is Abraham has Isaac and Isaac has Jacob and Esau or Esau and Jacob. Uh, Jacob becomes, he's renamed as Israel who has 12 sons, become the 12, uh, 12 tribes of Israel. And when Jacob starts out, he's a bit of a scoundrel. His father is blind, so he tricks him into giving him the blessing of the firstborn, which would have been Esau. But he dressed up in Esau's clothes. And his father Isaac 
He said, I'll give you the blessing of the firstborn, which is property, twice as much property, and the, the leadership of the, of the family. So when Esau finds out about Jacob's trickery, he swears he will kill him. So Jacob's mother, Rebekah, sends him off to Syria, up north, where he will find a wife and escape Esau's revenge. Jacob arrives in Syria, and it's, it's kind of a funny encounter, but uh, he sees Rachel from a distance, and he bursts out crying. He's almost sobbing. And then he goes up and he kisses her. He thinks she is the prettiest thing he's ever seen. This, uh, <laughs> uh, how not to get a date might be a good sermon title here. And, and she was at work when he did that. He accompanies her home to her father Laban and says, I will work seven years for this girl. And uh, the usual dowry was about two or three years at the most. So he's really up the ante. The father agrees, Laban agrees, and so they have the wedding week. You read this in Genesis. This makes a great movie, actually. But in Genesis... You have a seven-day wedding week because it's based on creation. You're going to have a new creation in this marriage. So they have seven-day feast. And you drink every day. And so by the seventh day, Jacob is a little bit woozy. He goes to bed but tells Laban, you bring my bride in. This is, I have put in the seven years and these seven days and I want my bride Rachel so what does Laban do he sneaks in Leah and I have studied this and I'm telling you over the years there's only one way you can put it the translations go one direction or another but the Bible says she was the ugly sister flat out that's it and Laban, she's older, he sneaks her in while Jacob is a little tipsy. He sleeps with her. The next morning he's sobered up. He looks at her and says, whoa, you are not Rachel. If you're going to ask a girl to marry you, don't, don't be drinking the night before. You might get the wrong one. Wise words. But he says, he goes to Laban and he says, what have you done to me? And Laban says, it's all right, it's okay. Work for me another seven years and I'll give you Rachel. So he agrees to that because he loves Rachel. And now at the end of that seven years, he has two wives. Here's the thing. Each one of those wives 
had a handmaid, Bilhah and Zilhah. And Bilhah and Zilhah go with them. And in order to speed up the childbearing process, Rachel and Leah say to Jacob, hey, sleep with our handmaids. Rachel was barren, so she's like, sleep with our handmaids. And Jacob's like, okay, I can do that. So before you know it, this man has four wives and 12 children. Now, most people would say, okay, that's messed up. And I would agree. You think you're messed up. Do you have four wives and 12 children? All right, now listen to this. Here's the ending. After 20 years, he takes his wives and his children and they head back to Canaan. And just before they get into the land of Canaan, someone comes to him and says, your brother Esau is coming with 400 men. Scares him to death. And he stops and during the night, he meets the Lord at the brook Jabbok and they wrestle. And, and Jacob says, I can't let you go without your blessing. And that's when his name was changed to Israel. He said, I'm going to bless you here and change your name. The next morning, he gets his servants. He gets the handmaids and their children. And then he gets Leah and her children. And then he gets Rachel and her son, Joseph. And he gets in the front of them and they go to meet Esau. On the one hand is a mighty army. On the other hand is a messed up family. With the blessing of God. He spent the night getting the blessing of God on that messed up family. Now which do you think is going to win? Who blinks? When Esau saw him, he jumps down off his horse, he goes to meet him, and he hugs him, and he says to him, Who are all these? Talking about his family. The impression of the family on Esau was stunning. See, here's the thing. Satan and the world thinks that the way to conquer is a bomb. God thinks the way to conquer is a baby. What's a good example of that? God sent his son. How did he send him? As a baby. That was his family. His son was an arrow. His family, his weapon was a baby, not a bullet. If you want to change the world, have a family. And a messed up family with the blessing of God is still stronger and greater than a mighty man on a horse with 400 men. Now, I'm telling you folks, this is why you go up to the house of God. And you know what Jacob did at the end of that, right after he met him and Esau bowed? You don't ever hear those 400 men anymore. And Esau finally turns and leaves and Jacob takes his little family and they go 
at the end of that chapter, this is Genesis 33, at the end of that chapter, it says he went and he built an altar and he named it. And it named, he named it El Shaddai, the God, the altar to the almighty God. An almighty God is what you need for a messed up family. So that's why we seek God. That's why we're asking Ken Freeman to come. That's why you need to be here on Sunday morning. Get your children, get your grandchildren, and let's come together and put the Lord first in our lives and let's see what God will do with babies, with children, with marriages, with families. What will God do with us? Amen. Let's pray. Ushers, you come as we pray. Let's worship with our giving. Heavenly Father, as we bow, none of us have met the standard here of David gave to his son. In one way or another, we're messed up. But Lord, we ask for your blessing. We ask for your power. We ask that you defeat great enemies by the means of our children and grandchildren. Grant us true victory in generations to come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.